This episode of the Cyclist Magazine podcast is brought to you by Hammerhead. The Hammerhead Crew 2 is a GPS cycling computer that can take your ride to the next level. Joe, what Crew 2 features do you like the sound of? For me, James, it's the Crew 2's climber feature. Climber's predictive path technology automatically detects climbs on my route, relaying vital information such as distance and elevation left to the top of the climb, colour-coded average gradients every 100 metres, and my current location on the climb, allowing me to judge my efforts to perfection whether I preload a route or not. For a limited time, our listeners can get a free custom colour kit and an exclusive premium water bottle with the purchase of a Hammerhead Karoo 2. All you have to do is visit hammerhead.io right now, add all three items to your cart and use promo code CYCLISTPOD at the checkout to get yours today. This is an exclusive limited time offer only for our podcast listeners. So don't forget to use our special promo code. That's hammerhead.io promo code cyclist pod and get your crew to and free custom color kit and premium water bottle today hello welcome back to the cyclist magazine podcast brought to you in association with hammerhead i'm your host joe robinson as ever joining me down the other end of the microphone is mr james spender hello joe Hello. And on today's episode, we've got a man who swims for a living, he runs for a living, he rides bikes for a living. He's in the World Tour, but he's also an Ironman athlete. It's Mr. Cam Worth of the Ineos Grenadiers. And we talked to him about join, rejoining the World Tour peloton in his late 30s, juggling his Ironman expectations and ambitions with World Tour bike racing, including the recent Paru Bay. But before we get on to that topic with Mr. Worth, James and I are going to run down some of the things that we're liking and disliking in the world of cycling right now. James, hello mate, how are you doing? Yeah, very well. Uh, As you can see, um, or as I can see, and I'm assuming you can see it too, I think I'm looking a little bit brown. It's been quite nice and sunny. I've been sat on you my. You do. You've caught some colour. Caught some colour. Yeah. Uh, it's it's great. I caught some colour as well. Oh yeah, not too bad. Not too bad. Uh, that's the back of his hands, ladies and gentlemen. Um, yeah, I caught some colour. I'll be a leathery walrus by the time I'm fifty. I'm sure. So it's not. How's your nose? How's my nose? Well, I've got a little bump, so it catches it more. Um, yeah. But there's weird lighting in here. So I have I have an, I have a theory that sunglass cycling sunglasses reflect sun rays down onto your nose that's why cyclists tend to end up with a bit of a burnt nose mm, that's an interesting theory i come up with that literally 20 seconds ago well feels... i mean uh sometimes the best theories are ones that people come up with 20 seconds ago and say with authority yes of, of course of course uh but yeah cyclists often do it's probably because there's a site they're outside mate really mm. and the sunglasses prevent other parts of their faces from burning mm. thus drawing more attention to the schnozzer Anyway, James, what are some of the things in you're liking and disliking at the moment? Tell me. Inform me. Uh, well, I mean, one of the things I'm disliking is non-stick frying pans when they get old. Oh, I, you know what? Go on, keep going. Because you got a story. I'm on your way. You got a story. Well, no, because I, I, I made some eggs earlier on a non-stick. Yeah, me too. Not non-stick anymore, is it? No, it's not. This is the thing, right? When an escalator breaks down, it stairs... When your microwave breaks down, it's just another handy little storage compartment. But when your non-stick Tefl frying pan, and yes, I'm going to name the brand Tefl, 
or T-Fowl, whatever, when that stops being non-stick, it's not just, oh, it's a frying pan now. It actually becomes, it becomes an egg ruiner. It specifically yeah. is more sticky than any known, sub, like any known or, surface. Or the sort of the pill of the metal comes up and gets in your eggs. Well, yeah, I mean, that's obviously a sort of like, probably a, should be a greater concern to me than not being able to do some nice um, over-easies. But... Scambled? No, I mean, over... over you know, over, You're doing a fryer? I'm doing a fry. Yeah, I'm doing a fry, but what I like to do for a sandwich... You're using vegetable oil? I use, I use olive oil, and yes, I know the smoke point is lower, but I don't care. No, what are you doing? You don't flip, though, do you? Yeah, I do. You flip? That's over easy. No, you, know, you want to flick oil from the... You're using too much oil if you're flicking oil. You're not my No, grandma. you're not, though. That's the thing. You're not using... I, I'm not a massive fan of fried eggs. I'm a scrambler guy. Mm. Uh, I've learned off James Martin, TV chef, whisk it in a bowl, put it into the pan, never stop whisking. Never stop whisking. Never stop whisking. Yeah, um, that's a that's a good method. I don't subscribe to the whisking it in the pan method, though you can get away with it if you're feeling particularly lazy. Um, yeah, low heat, don't stop stirring. I wouldn't be whisking in your pan, because what you don't want is a lot of air in your eggs, because then it cooks it much more quickly, and it leads to it becoming kind of spongy and rubbery. You want it to be I like more mine liquid. a bit snotty. A bit what? I like mine snotty. My scrambled eggs. Yeah, so you don't want to be whisk- you don't want air in there. You want yeah, them- but this is what James Martin taught me. That's one person in the world, and there are many people in the world. <laughs> so you don't like non-stick pans. I don't like non-stick pans when they cease to be non-stick. What are you liking? What am I liking? Um, I am specifically liking uh, some Arundel grip tape, which um, I've said I've mentioned this to you before on the on to you, Joseph, and to anyone listening to the show that I find wrapping bar tape incredibly therapeutic. Uh, I also did a full uh, strip and rebuild of my uh, little old 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 commuter, old Eddie Merckx, and, yeah, culminated in doing the bar tape. Top top tip, kids, save your bar tape till last because it's the most satisfying part of doing a bike and also wash your hands really well so that you don't mess up your nice new bar tape with all of that kind of mucky stuff on your hands. Um, but it's, just re- it's uh, called Gecko, Arundel Gecko Bar Tape, and it's just so not. It's it reminds me of how important bar tape is because it's making a bike that I bought in two thousand and three from eBay for a hundred. I think it's one hundred and seventy five pounds for the frame and fork. It makes it feel for at least ten minutes like a brand new several thousand pound bike. It's such a lovely premium, lovely premium feel. I think like I'd also probably recommend it for hockey sticks. Tennis sticks, maybe door handles. What's the colour on it? Uh, the colour is this kind of digital. I, you know, I'm not even sure what I mean by that, but the kind of blocky kind of fade. Like an NFT. Yeah, it looks like an NFT. Um, mm. Which, but it is fungible, and it's not owned by John. I Terry. think fungible is that that's the substance they make out of. Or no, that's how they yeah. that's how they measure the squish on bar tape, isn't it? Fungibility. Mm. So it's got very, it's very tactile. Yeah. It's got high fungibility. Some people go double fungible for Rubeau. yeah, double yeah. Well, precisely, it's triple fungible sometimes. Uh, well, I think a triple fungible is a is a gymnastics dismount. Oh, I thought it was a mortgage type. Ah, uh, well, anyway, so <laughs> I'm really liking that bar tape. So that's lovely. Anyway, so nonstick pans. Get out. I got a skillet, actually. That's what I was going to tell you. I also oh, got nice. a skillet. Yeah, and that good. came pre-seasoned. Beautiful. Lovely. Mm. Lovely little. Very heavy, though. Mm. Don't drop that on your foot in the morning when you're bleary-eyed. Anyway. But use it as a weapon if anyone breaks in. Yes, for comedy effect. <laughs> it makes that pang. Yeah, which is uh, probably just someone smashing a gong in a studio. Yeah. <laughs> the rank Xerox man. Do you remember him? 
right at the beginning of the movies, smashed a massive gong. Yeah. Probably you don't, yeah. a bit before your time. Maybe. No. Anyway, um, so that's that's me. Over to you, sir. What's been uh, tickling your fancies? Oh, what am I liking? Well, I just, I got, I was in Roubaix a couple of weeks, a couple of weekends ago now. Uh, it was beautiful weather, really nice and warm. Went and saw the women's and the men's race. Saw a trio of smoking, chain-smoking Belgian fans that all looked like Richard Osman in a different way. All still looked like TV's Richard Osman. Uh, we went chasing the race on the Sunday, the men's race. Went and saw it at the Arenberg Forest. Saw it at the Carrefour de l'Arbre. Saw it at the starting Compiègne. Saw former guest, previous guest, Fred Wright's dad. Oh, he, he confirmed to me, James, yes, he has commentated on his son. He's also commentated on his son winning the Junior Madison Track Championships, European Track Championships, and did it with Tim Hater, who's Ethan Hater's dad, who's the rider that he won it with. So there you go. That is tenuous and I like it. So he has commentated on his son winning. Um, also, I ate in a restaurant that was train themed and you could eat in a carriage. Nice. And it was an all-you-could-eat all entree buffet. Will the staff dress like Tintin? No, the staff were dressed pretty normally. Um, but I did that thing that I sometimes do in France where I order in French, they assume I can speak French, they respond to me in French and I have no idea what they've said, so I just say we. Oui. And it's ultimately not a question that's a yes or no answer. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, it's like, <laughs> yeah. And what drink would you like with that? Yes. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yes. Um, yes. Uh, so that, yeah, going out to Roubaix, cobble hopping, issue 127, my report on it, go out, buy it, read it, learn from it, do it. Um, what I'm not liking at the moment is oh I tell you what I'm not liking. I did the the local ten mile time trial as returned, and I did it on Wednesday. Really great event. It's not a ten mile time trial anymore. It's a nine mile time trial. They skipped off the first mile that was uphill, which really benefits me because now it's overall downhill, uh, which is perfect. Um, really good course. Brands Hatch former guest Ben Tullet has the course record. We've discussed it before. Um, but at the start, some, a spectator had bought their Jack Russell and I'm scared of dogs. Even Jack Russell's. Even Jack Russell's. I don't, I don't feel comfortable around any dogs. And it was quite close to me. It was barking and yapping at me while I was being held up by the pennant man. So I couldn't relax, which meant I was a bit tilted and I felt like I was going to fall over. So I don't like domesticated animals that are yappy being brought to the start Mm. of time trials. There you go, there's your Achilles heel. Yeah, that is my Achilles heel. Dogs at dogs at sporting events I'm taking part in is a Achilles heel of mine because when I was a young when I was about twelve or thirteen, I was playing cricket for Dartford Cricket Club against I wanna say it was like Ainsford Cricket Club or Kemsing. And I was in the field. I was at third man and a dog got on the pitch and ran at me and I I ran away. I was so scared. I ran away. I ran off the pitch and I cried. Do you think it was released by the Kemsing supporters? Potentially. Potentially, because I had quite a stinging, medium, fast-paced attack that they knew was about to come. Well, I guess Husky <laughs> Racing is out for you. <laughs> yeah, definitely not. I'd never go. Do you watch Crafts? Would uh, you watch that? Or would that be, would that be some kind of um, Anthony Burgess-style clockwork orange torture, having to prop your eyelids up with matchsticks while you watched it? 
part partially i'm a lot better than i'm a lot better than i was when i was younger um i appreciate the i appreciate the craftsmanship of craft the grooming the grooming um and the agility of some of the dogs is fairly impressive but i'm not setting it on to series link i'm no. not i'm not that fussed i would rather watch something else i feel like backs against the wall crafts is the first thing that should go do you reckon it just seems it's one of the most frivolous human endeavors known like yeah. known to human human humankind about in the chelsea flower show or is that that's quite important for the ecosystem right yeah maybe that could be the end of each chelsea flower show is they um hide stakes in all of the different ex- like exhibits and the winners of crufts get to run in and savage the gardens looking for the stakes like uh, a bit like takeshi's castle challenge yeah. yeah release the hounds yes okay Perfect. Okay, well, that's decided. Um, before we ramble on any more about stuff that's got nothing to do with cycling, which is our favourite topic to talk about, let's get into our interview with Camworth because it's really interesting because we talked to him about being a triathlete, an Ironman triathlete, and a professional world tour cyclist all at the same time. Uh, and he's a really inspirational chap. So here you go. So let's start with this one, Cam. So you're in Andorra. Mm-hmm. Uh, when did you get back from Belgium? Because you raced Umlup on Saturday, didn't you? Yeah, I, I did Saturday and uh, I actually flew back on Sunday. Um, I was meant to race both races, but Ethan Hayter had a bit of a, you know, he had a funny day in Umlup. He was, he, you know, he's obviously it's pretty obvious on TV. He's always commented on his positioning in the peloton. Seems to always be at the back. Yet when you're that phenomenally talented, you have the horsepower to, as people get tired to sort of keep moving up. And and you've seen a huge amount of success he has in stage races. And that's because, you know, that's probably much easier. You generally get smaller, you know, um, field sizes and um, not such technical roads. So he's able to get to the front and, and, and have a lot of <laughs> quite prolific success rate of victories. But in the classics, it kind of bites you on the backside. You've only got to be slightly on the wrong side of a split at, at a crucial moment. You know, he ends up twentieth when he, in, in, you know, probably had the capacity to be fighting for the win. So, the idea was, um, you know, he was angry with himself. He wanted to go Sunday and see if he could do it. Yeah, you know, do a better job. So I offered to give up my spot. <laughs> which is, so I guess that 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 kind of explains, Cam. It kind of explains what you are at the moment because I think, let's say. You were someone who got into the sport five years ago, right? Yeah. And in twenty, at the beginning of 2020, you see an announcement that Ineos Grenadiers, which are the richest, one of the richest world tour teams, mm. have signed a guy who's 36 yep. to to join their world tour team yep. uh, to replace Vassil Kirienka. Yeah. You might have gone like, what? That makes no sense. Why wouldn't you just go use all your infinite money on someone else? But yeah. You've got a really amazing story, which is that you are a former junior rowing world champion. Under 23, went, actually. But under yeah. 23, yeah, yeah that's yep. it. And under 23, one in, uh, in Belgrade. You then went and you competed in Athens in, the, in rowing. You then go, you know what? I'm bored of rowing now. I'm going to become a professional cyclist, to which you did for a few years in the sort of the late noughties until the early, sort of about 10 years ago. And then you went, Okay, cycling, I'm going to park that for a bit and I'm going to go into triathlon and Ironman, which you then did. Well, not really. I oh, actually yeah, parked cycling to go and work in finance that, in that's LA. In, in, Wall, in Wall Street, in, wasn't it? Yeah. In, well, that was, that was the goal. The goal to be balanced between 
Los Angeles because I love living there and, and obviously I'd always dreamed of working on Wall Street with my I've done an economics and finance degree. So yeah. Actually utilize it before I was too old and and, and, gang, and, and crippling. So that was the that was sort of like the plan, you know. With, but ended up doing a couple of triathlons sort of because you can't really just walk away from sport when you've yeah. been doing it that level your whole life. Yeah, anyway, loved it. And here we are. Then you go, okay, I'm I'm really into triathlon, really into Ironman. You start cracking away, sort of competing at Ironman events. And then in 2020, do you just get a call from Dave Browsford one day who says, Cam, there's a spot opened up and you're my guy. Talk us through how that happened. Yeah, so it was a little bit more there was a little bit more build up to it than that. So 2017. So I'd, I'd gone to LA, I'd found a job. I was, you know, starting to get involved in a, with a real estate investment fund and doing my training, et cetera. And um, that was 2016. So I took a couple of years to sort of find my feet in LA and, and, and find a place I wanted to work and went back to, um, to Tassie for, for Christmas, the end of 16. And obviously you're home in Tassie. So Richie's home. So, you, you know, you get up to money and do some riding with him and, you know, getting the you sort of get in the groove with all the guys. It's summer, and you know everyone's feeling good. So you do a bit more training than you than other than you I sort of had been, I guess, at the time. And Richie went and won uh, down under, and Tim Kerrison was there. That was when Richie was still with BMC. And Tim said, "Oh gosh, you're fit this year." And Richie said, "Yeah, we've been home. I've been riding with him." And Tim was Tim was a, a rowing coach. You know, he coached rowing back when I was rowing. So I've known him since 2002. Um, and he, he didn't. He just figured I'd fall off the face of the earth. And, and said, oh, wow, he's in town. And so Froomey was, you know, sitting up in uh, on the Gold Coast on his own for a training camp. So Tim just ran me and asked if I'd go and train with Froomey. I'd done such a good job with Richie. I may as well go ride with Froomey for a couple of da- 10 days or so while I was still in Australia. And, and then that sort of ignited the, the return to sport, if you like. And, um, and that was at the end of that little camp was when the conversation of, do you want to come back to cycling? You know, there's potential to join, obviously, Team Sky then, but... Um, you know, I said I'd done a couple of triathlons for fun in those couple of years away and loved it. And, and Tim thought that was probably a sport that really suited me. So anyway, I, I was training with the team and a lot with Fruby that first year, 17, 18, I started training a lot with Geraint. 19, I started getting involved more with Pavel Sivakov, Teo and guys here in Andorra because I was living here at the time. And then um, obviously went to Kona that year, was fifth. And after that, uh, my contracts were all up with, you know, with the technical partners, which were all partners of the, of the team, you know, Scott, um, you know, Pinarello, Castelli, Cass. And I got some, you know, quite big pushes and some pushes from other organizations that also had teams, the bigger ones. And, um, and uh, yeah, I spoke to Carson Jefferson about it because he'd actually organized all my contracts, you know, with the technical partners in the first instance. And uh, he rang Dave and Dave said, well, you know, we don't want to go anywhere else. So bring him to the camp. We'll have a think about what we're going to do with him. And so I, I went to the team camp at the end of 19. And I think that was a bit of a, for Dave, was an opportunity to see how I fitted in with everyone else. You know, the rest of the riders uh, that I hadn't trained with, the camps, et cetera, and the staff. And um, yeah, and the comment, you know, just the general consensus was why, you know, don't you do a few races with the team? And, and often I'd be at camps and they're shorter riders, et cetera. And so, uh, yeah, so Dave, after that, at the end of that camp, he sat down with me and just said, you know, would, you know, at some point, I mean, at the moment we're full, we've got 30 riders, the, the limit, you know, would you be interested in coming back? And I said, you know, I left cycling happily behind, to be honest. Um, and I love what I'm doing with Ironman. I said, but if you want to have a spot for a guy that is able to fill in or has a case with Kern, Brussels, Kern, go to it, but then actually not even end up doing it, 
you know, be very, very versatile and adaptable in that regard to plug gaps in the team and do what's do what's the best interest of the team all the time as far as, you know, selection and whatever. Um, yeah, I'd love to do that role, you know, have no, no fixed schedule, just always be available. You know, I'm always in pretty good shape. And, and it, I guess it was pretty cocky and confident to think that I could just jump into a world tour race at any, any given time, even if I'm in the middle of swimming block or running block or whatever. But I guess <laughs> I exude a fair bit of confidence. And, um, and we left it at that, you know, at the time they were full. And then, of course, you know, Kiri had his heart issues. And I was in LA training with G at the beginning of 2020. And, yeah, it was Carson that actually called um, and just said, listen, Kiri's going out. The UCI said they'll add you because you're already in the, you know, the testing porthole, you know, with Ironman. I was on the registered. So that's obviously an issue joining World Tour team, but we need to do it now. You know, I need a decision. I said, oh, let's do it. And, um, and then Tim Kerrison called and said, well, we've, you haven't raced for seven years, so we might as well get you on the line as soon as possible. So, you know, Cadell's race was a week later, so they sent me straight to Australia for that. All I got from Dave was just a text message to say, uh, I obviously messaged him and say, you know, thank you for the opportunity. He just said, you know, we, we believe in you. We believe you can you can really help our team and and be a great part of it. And, and that was that. So um, off to Australia I went and I certainly found out very quickly that I hadn't raced for seven years. I mean, okay, I was, I was in the thick of the action from the gun. Luke Rowe told me to put it in the gutter about 5K into the race and we split the race to pieces and I was <laughs> on the front. And so that kind of... Um, broke the ice for the rest of the peloton to say, oh, crap, worse back. Okay, that's not mm. – we don't need to treat him weird or funny because he's a triathlete or what's he going to do? It's like, no, nah, he's just the same old guy that was here before. <laughs> um, but, gosh, I had lactate coming from parts of my body I didn't even know existed <laughs> doing those doing those first few pulls and then forgotten what it was like to ride in the World Tour. So it was really good we went through that, you know, as in I, I went and raced straight away to know that sugar, okay, I – Okay, I can race, but I need to certainly make a few adjustments in my training to make sure I am useful to the team. And you know, I went and did Algarve, and I was certainly better there. And then, um, and then, of course, COVID hit. So that sort of that actually gave me a chance to catch up. You know, it, it gave me a chance to work on those things that I knew I was deficient in in the training before we resume racing. And I, since we resumed, I've I've been much more, you know, much more comfortable in the peloton. Um, it was funny on Saturday, uh, we, you know, playing boxing, you know, everyone, no one wants to pull. There's a breakaway gone and, you know, Jumbo Viz was obviously got out and we got Tom and, you know, quick steps, obviously quick step. And Ilya Kessa came up to me and said, look, I'll ride if you ride on the front. And I said, oh, well, you know, I've just got to wait for the orders from the team. Anyway, another 10K passes, the brakes going up and he goes up to Tom and he says, um, oh, Tom, I'll ride if Cameron rides. And Tom said, what only Cam? <laughs> he said, "Yeah, I want to ride. With, I'll ride with Cameron." <laughs> and uh, Tom gave up. He said, "Mate, he wants to ride with you." I said, "Yeah, that's that's quite a compliment." He said, "Well, it's because you're good at it, Cam. It's because you're good at it, mate." <laughs> and I was like, "Oh, thanks." So it was nice, you know. It's taken a couple of years, but that certainly that um, oh, the triathlete or the whatever the sideshow, the sideshow part of you know, worth being back in the bunch, uh, being an old man has has vanished now. To okay. The race is a bit out of control. We need someone strong on the front to ride with, you know, in both interests of both teams, and we want to ride with Cameron. So that was quite a quite a nice little moment for me, to be honest, yeah. to make me feel like, you know, the guys are, you know, they don't treat me, they don't treat me in a special way because I, I do it on sport as well. It's just I'm there to do a job and and um and we crack on. So um yeah, so that's how it all sort of evolved and you know, it's like the song, you know, you need me, call me, no matter where you are, no matter how far. 
Just call me baby. You know that one? Yeah, that's, yeah. that's pretty much how my um, ain't no mountain high enough, ain't no river wide enough. Yeah, so that's uh, that's how it works. They call me and, and off I go and we go and race. And it's been, you know, the Welter, it's been the Classics, it's been, you know, our Garb a couple of times. You know, I've been all over the place. No, a lot of times, a lot of, you know, for a long time, it was all races I'd never done before. There's often races I've never done before. And, I did Valencia last week. That was a kick in the teeth. I flew back from LA, landed Tuesday, you know, afternoon. I was on the start line Monday morning. That was uh, that was tough because my wife went to the Super Bowl, so we uh, we stayed to, to watch that. And well, she did. She went to the game. I babysat our boy, and yeah. So I'd never been to that before, but I was caught up at the last minute, and I was obviously still in LA, so didn't really have any choice. <laughs> so. Um, yeah, it's it's awesome, you know. And I guess I don't have a chance to back to your point about the age of the team putting a thirty-six-year-old on the on the roster. I don't really have a chance to think about how old I am. It's it's very unpredictable, and you know, you've got a bunch of young guys around you. I mean, Magnus Sheffield has been staying at our house the whole time we're away, and you know, obviously, he was still here when we came back and went off to the race together, and um, you know, he did so well, and yeah, and he's now found his own place there here in here in um, here in Andorra, so. You know, I, I've had a lot to do. I've got a, I've got a giant duck in my front yard. Tom Peacock's uh, girlfriend, Bethany. That's what our baby, you know, White's babysitter. So, they, a, a duck that he wanted to race somewhere, some cyclocross race in Holland, has found its way to my terrace. So, an, an actual duck. The actual big giant paper mache duck. Oh, yeah, this big, big yellow thing. <laughs> you know, Magnus has left his trophy here, so it's. Um, I would certainly really feel a part of the team, you know, and I definitely feel like the old guy. <laughs> so, Cam, do you, like, like most of your teammates will have, like, a rough idea. They'll be like, you've got this block where you're going to race Paris-Nice, say, then you're going to go and do the Spring Classics, then you're going to stop for a bit here. Are, have, are you basically, at the beginning of the year, like, I don't know, I could be racing like you said in Andalusia one week and then I've got to go and do a race in Croatia then I've got to do a one-day race in here is it literally Cam we need you get here now 100% and you know Dave I you know you said you just you're a trainaholic you're always fit you know you're always you're always in good shape maybe I've never never been in great had the opportunity to be in great shape for a bike race um but that seems to be enough to be able to contribute you know Short of starting one rider, you know, you've got to think this is a situation where they're going to go a rider less or they can put me in, you know. And so I'm able to contribute to the to the performance of the team, I feel. Like I genuinely believe I can contribute to it. They're better off with me there than having me not there at all and um, and, and, it, and in any race. And, and that was the thing. It was like I didn't say to Dave, look, I'll only come back if you only call me up for the Tour de France or, you know, <laughs> that was, well, I think that would have been a pretty short conversation, but um, it was basically, you know, you, you want me for any, I'll be there for whatever you want. And, and I'll, I'll definitely try and make a contribution that is better than you having no one there at all. On that 2020, right? You, so you sign in January, your French straight deep end, Cadell Evans road race. And then by October that year, you've raced, a monument in Liège and the Grand Tour in Vuelta. How how long did it take for you to get back into the ebb and flow of the peloton? Because the the fitness side is one thing, like having the legs is one thing, but knowing how the peloton reacts, it moves, is something you have to sort of have a feeling for. How long did that take to come back? 
fortunately, the first race I did after lockdown, as I said, lockdown was quite good for me. Going to Tour of Wallonie, I mean, they always say Belgium's the best school in cycling. Tour of Wallonie is like the next, I think that's like where you get your masters. That race <laughs> is bonkers. There is stuff everywhere. There's riders everywhere. There was, well, there weren't fans everywhere, but it was, it was nuts. You know, that we had a bit of rain, a bit of sun and oil on the roads and, and, and that really got, you know, I was, I, coming out of lockdown, I was confident. So I guess I had a confidence that I had the, the engine to compete with these guys. And then it was just a case of, you know, just getting the ebb and flow of the Peloton and, and having Wallani as that first race back, you know, and still only my third race back, you know, after seven years, it really snapped that, that into me. And, um, and then I did, you know, a number of other races in, there in Belgium and, and, uh, and then obviously went off and did the, did the Vuelta. And in the Vuelta, I was, you know, very comfortable. You know, I felt like I was, the role I was playing, one of the better guys. And, you know, every day, I, I certainly never was in the Gruppetto. You know, I never saw the Gruppetto. I was, you know, I'd, I'd get dropped sort of later on in the race before they'd formed and, um, or finish my work or whatever. And uh, I got through it actually quite comfortably. And it was interesting, you know, everyone was quite shocked about that. And, and when Tim and I analysed it and talking to my running coaching group at night, you know, I run, my running program is, is a six-day cycle. So you do six days on and have a rest day from running. And basically all my training revolves around my running. And so I'm used to actually, running for me is like the thing I've had to work the hardest on. So really even an easy run is a hard run for me. <laughs> so every day I'm really feeling some fatigue. And that welter was, we didn't really have any easy days. Breakaway rarely won. And if it did, it was because we just didn't catch them by like the slightest margin. It wasn't like, you know, let it go to 20 minutes and let it, you know, let them have it. It was, it was on every day. And that type of fatigue of everyone in their legs every day seemed to really help. So in your, you know, you had a big, uh, big hiatus from world tour, certainly, but you're still racing bikes. So you're doing uh triathlon and Ironman. And I think I'm right in saying you've won four Ironmans. Yeah, I won Wales. Wales was my first one. And then, uh, yeah. Did you come and watch you at that one? Yeah, no, he was – so that was the same day that they finished. So the world had finished that day. I got a message from Chris on the bike in his red jersey with his champagne because we, we trained together in between the Tour and the Vuelta that year. And um, and so, yeah, so that was really that was really special to get that, to be honest, in there in the, in the car with the champagne. You know, Tim Kett sent me a message saying congratulations with a little speech from Froome. But G was racing um, Tour of Britain and it finished in Cardiff the same day. So uh, yeah, I was I was pretty I was close to those guys. It was a horrible day. I mean, well, it's funny because I, I was I was at that Tour of Britain stage. It was horrific. torrential rain yeah. all day. Yeah, it was, well, it, was the same, it was the same down in Tempe. So it was pretty miserable. It, and it's funny because it's a bit of a talking we often talk about. You know, with Luke Rowe and all the guys are at that race duel. Um, lawless. You know, we we talk about you know how horrible that day was. <laughs> so whenever the weather's bad, they say, "Come on, Cam." You've rested worse than this, <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. But those those uh, those Iron Iron uh, Ironmans led to a qualification for Kona, which you couldn't do in 2021. You couldn't do sorry, you couldn't do in 2020. You couldn't do in 2021. COVID. So it's 2022. You're still qualified. Are you going to be racing it? And if so, how does that sit next to your world tour schedule? Because there might be the call that says, "Can you come and race?" And you're like, "Sorry, I'm in Hawaii." Yeah. So that, the deal was that you know the team would always support me for Hawaii. Um, the issue we've got this year is they because they've missed two years and that's a qualifying system and more so reflects on the age group athletes and the pros. 
they've tried to squeeze another, you know, sort of pseudo world championship in, in May in Utah. And basically people that were qualified for you know, the 2020 Kona dating all the way back there, they've, they've attempted to have it in February, had to cancel that twice as well. And then October and then tried again this February and none of it worked out. So they were desperate to hold something to clear those slots. So they've added this world championship in May, which I obviously can't do because, I mean, you've got the Giro going on, you've got Norway, you've got Hungary, you've got the end of the classics, you've got, you know, the build up for the tour. I can't leave Europe then, you know, because as you say, I could get the call and be at the race and, and um, that just doesn't work. And and obviously if Kona had been in May, I would have never committed to being on the, basically on the bike because, you know, I couldn't take all that time out from the season. Um, so, yeah, so now in theory, I'm going to have to qualify again for Kona. But so, um, yeah, I'll obviously want to, like I did last year, I want to do some racing in, over the summer, over the spring and the summer when I get a free weekend. But, it, but in theory, you know, there's a number of races on. And when I'm not racing for sure, one of those weekends, you know, you've got, for instance, during the Tour de France, it's pretty unlikely I'll be there. So I'll know I'm, not, I'll know I'm free for sort of, you know, four weeks at least. And there's at least three or four Ironmans there. So I'll be able to pick, pick one or even two if I need a couple of cracks at qualification. But obviously in the past, I've had an issue with it. But, yeah, that, that'll be the first thing. And then, um, yeah, they've, they've sort of said from, you know, Tour of Britain time, you know, which is sort of coinciding with the Welter, Anico, Canada races, you know, obviously in theory I'd probably go to Canada and then stay in America and, and get ready for Kona. So, you know, they, were, they won't need me for that end of year part, you know, with Lombardia and those races, you know, there's plenty of riders to fill basically just one program once you get down that end of the year. Cam, what does your week look like in terms of training? Because for a World Tour bike racer, it's pretty simple. It's like three or four, five-hour days, a couple of days of efforts, and then resting. But you also need to swim and run while also being a World Tour athlete. Yeah, I mean, I guess for my role in the team, we rely a lot on the racing to keep that level. <laughs> so, air the, the top end and, and then, you know, just protecting the guys from wind riding on the front, etc. So, as far as, like, training for racing on the bike, I don't necessarily do so much of that. So, when I'm at home, it's generally the intensity I do it is, is generally in the pool or running. And, um, and the riding is just more used to build out the volume and, and obviously maintain the endurance on the bike. Last year, we, we sort of muffed it up a little bit at times. I'd get to the races quite dead in the legs because I'd been doing some long sort of draggy running blocks and that really is not conducive to top-end cycling. Whereas now we've just in the last sort of few weeks and I'm in an Andalusia the first couple of days was a bit tough, but then I, I slowly but surely got in the groove. But then then doing some more, you know, so I've actually gone more to a high-intensity type running, so much shorter sort of bursts and, so I'm either going flat out or I'm going pretty pretty cruisy. So more like a bike race. And on the weekend in, in Umlup, I was I felt really, really good. You know, like I was able to really ride quite hard on the front and hold position for a lot longer than I had been in the past. I even led the peloton over a couple of cobbled sectors, which, you know, once you're 100K into the race, so trust me, like, it's never easy to be in that position. So um, that's something I hadn't been able to do in the past. So I was certainly starting to find a way to, 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 you, to train for, you know, for the swimming and the running in a different way a little bit, um, which then I, I feel like could potentially actually even help me do a better job on the bike when I'm racing. But it's also an area after being in Portland a couple of weeks ago at Nike where we did a lot of analysis on my running to see where my physiology was. It's actually the area I specifically need to work on to make a step change now in my running. I've become 
quite efficient at that pace that, you know, Ironman pace that I run at, which is good. But for me, they feel that there's a, there's a lot of improvement to be, to be gained now by kind of pushing me a bit, but then also some technical aspects of my style, which you can learn, which is best learned actually running quite slow. And it's, it's also in, it's increased your muscle density. You were talking to Garrett Thomas recently about this, that you think running immediately, you're like, that will make you lose weight. But actually for you, it's it, where it toughens the joints and the muscles in the legs. You've actually increased your body race weight, haven't you? Yeah, so I'm a couple of kilos heavier than I was when I was when I was cycling, and you would think, you know, running, you watch a marathon runner, they you know they're tiny, but <laughs> yeah. And I think, and I and I must admit, this time finally now, it's taken a few years, and same with the swimming. I seem to. My wife even commented when I got back from it was actually when I got back from Ruta del Sol. She said, "Gosh, you're skinny." And and it, and what happens? I remember when I came from rowing to cycling, and originally you sort of get these big puffy legs because you your body's having to react to all of a sudden all this high intensity and it, has, it just grows muscle, you know, and, and gets bigger. And, and then as you get more efficient at cycling, you get this, you get a huge amount of lean muscle mass, you know, you really find down and you start to lose weight. And I'm actually starting to finally sort of see signs of that. Now we try one, you know, after, you know, three or four years of continuous work at it, I'm, I'm starting to get some efficiency in both the running and the, and the swimming. So I don't need the body's not you know, building extra muscle just to pull it all together. So that's really, I mean, that's really good. And speak, you know, typically this is going back some years, but cyclists would suffer, um, could suffer from osteoporosis later in life because it's not a sort of a load bearing sport in the way that yeah, running is. And you are uh, literally a running, walking embodiment of the idea that do a bit of running and your bone density increases and that's really good for really good for crashing and knitting and bones knitting back together but i'm just wondering are you the doctors um and sports scientists at ineos are they kind of looking at you thinking this guy could be a model for how we get our riders to have long careers because you've had such an incredibly long career and i wonder what part of that is down to this cross training that you've been doing yeah, yeah. I mean, I got no idea to be honest. <laughs> they look at me. I hope they don't use me as much for role model. But, um, but, but uh, yeah, I mean, they definitely asked me a lot of questions about that. And and you know, my dad actually arrived you know a couple of days ago. He yeah, I hadn't seen him for two years. But you know, when I was fourteen, fifteen, he had me at the gym. You know, five days a week um, when I started rowing. And but he wouldn't have me just doing bench press and squats and trying to get you know ripped. It was okay, today you're going to do shoulders, tomorrow you're going to do arms, the next day you're doing back, then another day you do chest, then another day you do legs. And equal importance on, you know, every part of the body. And as a result of that, I sort of never got big. You know, I rode lightweight. I rode in the 70-kilo category. Obviously, cycling, I've, you know, always was a good size to be able to be a decent climber. And, and now in try, you know, endurance sport, I'm still around that 72, 73-kilo mark and could probably get a bit leaner if I wanted. Um, but... You know, I got very, you know, quite strong and, and I never in rowing had injuries. You know, I just got back from, you know, got off the treadmill, you know, doing some quite hard, you know, minute and 30, pretty much flat out, you know, three and a half minutes easy for an hour. Um, you know, really pushing myself in ways I've, I've never done before. Um, I think whatever I've done over the years to sort of focus on a, on a holistic approach of looking after the entire body, I think is paying dividends now at this point in my career. And, you know, I haven't crashed much. I've had a couple of crashes, but, 
you know, when I do, it's just a, a broken rib, but a small fracture, you know, I'm not breaking collarbones or arms, you know, obviously touch wood, but yeah, you know, I definitely have been very fortunate, you know, compared to other people who have been in the same crashes. With me. I've heard that, um, I've heard that Primrose Roglic, one of his keys to success is apparently he runs for 20 minutes every morning. I've heard like even at Grand Tours, he'll make, he'll go out and do like 20 minutes and he swears by it. Yeah, I mean, the thing about it is, and I say, because obviously everyone asks me because they hear about that. They never think, oh, well, if you run, I might run. I mean, it's not like I'm a great example for performance, but they hear about Roglic, so they ask the question. And I say, if you're a runner, if you can run, it's one of the best things you can do because it, what it does is it switches on so much connective tissue and activates so many muscles that are sort of quite, you know, dormant and quiet and, you know, you may not necessarily turn on when you're, when you're, when you're cycling. And it gives him much better use of his body, you know, and um, it also helps with body weight, you know. I mean, he obviously does it when he gets up in the morning and gets on, pulls on his shoes, goes for a quick jog and goes back and have his breakfast. It keeps, you know, the metabolism, everything moving. But if you're not a runner, I remember Ivan Basso asking me about this when he was finishing his career and wanting to do a marathon and, you know, tried to go. I mean, he he, had, he thought he was convinced his shins were broken, you know, both of them. I was convinced they were shattered. And obviously went off the scans and x-rays and nothing wrong and, you know, go back and run more and that got even worse. So go and get x-rays again and no issue. And it's like, mate, it's going to take months, you know. It might take six months before you get on top of it. And and these guys, when they've had a lifetime of never doing it, it's the same as swimming. People think, oh, hear about Richie Port and swimming. And Richie Port's a great swimmer. So, yes, Richie can just go down to the pool in the afternoon and float through four or five k. You know, down there in Monaco, you know, on the port. Sounds beautiful, doesn't it? Just floating <laughs> along, looking at the, you know, out the ocean, the super yachts, maybe the Formula One races going on and Richie's there cutting laps. But I say to the guys, if you can't swim, it's the worst thing in the world you can do because you're going to spend so much energy just trying not to drown, which is going to create muscle growth, which is going to be extra weight you don't need when you're swimming. So it's all very dependent on each athlete. How does, um, how does your sort of training compare casting your mind back to the days of rowing which is you know notoriously brutal sport incredibly early starts and the i believe the idea of rowing is to be as cold and miserable as possible at all times so that you yeah. run faster to get out of the water yep yeah that's that's pretty much it so you, you certainly you know waking up late is one of the one of the big differences <laughs> not i don't have <laughs> i don't need an alarm as much as i needed back in those days um but um you know, it's funny. I think the reason I've transitioned through the sports the way I have is at the end of the day, they're kind of all similar, just in, made up in a different way. I mean, rowing, okay, it's only a five, six-minute effort, but often I do six hours of training. You know, you're on the water for a couple of hours in the morning and you're in the gym for an hour or two and then, you know, a couple of hours, you know, especially once we got into cycling, you know, cycling became quite popular in rowing um, towards the end of my time and you do two or three or four hours on a bike, you know, I remember some Saturday, Sundays, there'd be nothing to do six or eight hours in total. Um, so, you know, I've always exercised a lot. <laughs> so I guess that has never really changed. Obviously, then when you went into cycling, it was just all on the bike. You know, I did go completely cold turkey on cycling. I didn't go to the gym anymore. I, you know, I didn't do any of that. Um, I really didn't do any running or anything for a number of years. I started getting into that a bit towards the end of my time cycling. Um, but yeah, generally I just tried to be a cyclist And as I said, in that generation, it wasn't cool to also do other stuff, you know, it was, especially on an Italian team. It was, um, it was definitely the worst thing you could have done. So, um, so yeah. So, and then obviously now in triathlon, it's a bit, you know, you, you, you sort of split it up a bit more not as much time on the bike and add the volume with the other two. So 
in in all honesty, they've they've all been very similar, you know, bar bar the you know the dark cold you know wet wet mornings. But um, well, I'll tell you what though, give me a give me a wet cold miserable morning in a rowing boat over you know being out in the pouring rain and freezing hands and you know water getting splashed in your face and mud and god knows whatever else you know you're training somewhere and worrying about sliding under a car i certainly probably miss, prefer to be in the rowing boat than the days that you get caught out in the road on that in those conditions how do you um or how has your kind of inner, inner monologue kind of played out as you've transitioned through sports because obviously when you're when you're rowing your skull, you're in a double skull, so you're with somebody else. And then when you're in a world tour team, bike racing, you're in a pack, uh, you've got teammates. But then Ironman and triathlon, there's a lot of time, especially in Ironman. How many, what's the kilometers in Ironman? It's 100 and... 180. 180. That's a long yeah. time on your own. What kind of soul yeah. searching goes on there and how do you keep yourself motivated? Yeah, I mean, I guess you're obviously, like any competition, you're kind of constantly calculating where you are. And, you know, and there's plenty of, I mean, it's amazing how fast the bike leg goes, obviously, because I'm so good. No, but, um, <laughs> you know, it's, <laughs> it's like, you know, it is, it's around four hours, which isn't a long time. And, but, you know, you bike is so crucial um, to the race because it's that middle part. You need to eat, you need to drink, you need to obviously, I need to obviously stamp, try and stamp my authority on the event. So it's that constant calculation of pushing a bit holding back pushing a bit making sure i got the fuel in you know doing all that um and then uh you know as i get into the sort of last 40 50k i'm generally in a pretty good position but, you know I, I really just can't wait to get off it because then i start getting paranoid about getting a flat tire crashing missing a turn you know hitting an age group or dropping a bottle you know i guess i just want to be off that bike i want to be on my own two feet where then it's all on me you know it's up to me then um so yeah, that's sort of the, the general way the bike goes and it, it tends to go quite quick. You know, the first half is generally spent, you know, if I'm behind in the swim, sort of catching up and trying to establish myself in the race or put some pressure on in the race. And then you've got another, you know, 40, 50K to sort of make make a bit of a play and, and see, you know, what you can do to the field. And then, you you know, you get within that 20, 30, 40K to the finish and you're starting to think about the run. So it actually goes remarkably quickly. Um you know, it's, it's certainly not that you're sitting out there twiddling your thumbs going, damn, I've still got 200, you know, 100K to go or anything. It's it's not like that at all. So um, when when you get onto the bike leg the, and you're there, do, do rivals look a, alongside and go, oh, shit, Worth's here. And yeah, he's a well-taught uh, bike racer. <laughs> yeah, generally. I, I think, I've, I mean, I've told this story a number of times, but Wales was the funniest one. I had an amazing swim that day and all the guys couldn't believe I was in the front group. And so they all just just put on their helmets and left. And I'm thinking it's literally five degrees and raining and they're in a tri-suit. And I stood there for, five, you know, for, for a minute or so and put on an extra jersey, put on a raincoat, put on some arm warmers, sort of dusted myself off. You know, I think I even ate a Mars bar and, you know, had a bit of extra fuel because I knew it wouldn't be as easy to eat when in the crappy weather from my experience racing on the bike. And, yeah, sure enough, 10K later, I'm past them and they're shivering, you know, like they're shaking because <laughs> it's just so cold. I mean, what do you expect, you goose? And obviously went on to get, you know, a ridiculous lead and won the race. So, um, yeah, there's definitely that and, and that, that obviously still happens because, you know, there's a bit of perception that I can't swim. But the funny thing is I've actually had more very good swims where I've been pretty much at the front of the race than I've had bad swims. Um, Kona, I haven't had a great, well, I've had one okay, you know, decent swim one year, but I've had a couple of bad swims, which has sort of put me out of the race, I guess. 
Um, but yeah, generally I'm, I'm up there. And for those like listeners um, out there who are unfamiliar with the difference between, um, it was the IT, but it's now World Triathlon uh, Accepted Bikes and UCI Time Trial Bikes. What are the differences between your Ironman bike and your TT bike? And also, what are the differences in speed? We don't have the regulations that you have for, I mean, basically there's none. Um, so there's, there's some crazy, you know, you could ride one of the UK sport track bikes if you want to turn that into a normal bike, you know, for example, in a triathlon. Um, but, you know, probably be quite stiff and then that'd be quite uncomfortable when you want to go and run. Um, and then, uh, yeah, whereas with Olympic distance, they obviously use, you know, you know, regular road bikes and it's governed by the exact same rules as, as, um, as road cycling, you know, five centimeters behind the bottom bracket, et cetera. Um, but yeah, we have no rules. So you can have the, the seat as far forward as you want, which helps open up your heat angle. So it's, and then obviously the frame can have fairings and different things to, to increase aerodynamics. So, you know, if you put the frame itself in a wind tunnel, then yeah, they're generally, they're, for instance, my bike is quicker than the bike that Ghana uses in the wind tunnel when it sits there. Um, but then once you put the body on there and you think about having to be able to be in that position for 180K, you know, ride at a good pace, but then also get off it and run, there are obviously some compromises in aerodynamics. You can't go all out on aerodynamics because you'll probably spend, you know, at least an hour trying to straighten yourself up when you get off it. <laughs> so, you know, it kind of comes back probably to sort of even out the wash to be, a, you know, in a normal UCI, very good aerodynamic position you can hold for 40K. You're probably in a much more comfortable aerodynamic position on the, on the triathlon bike because you don't have those restrictions. I, I never thought about that, the fact that you can't... So do you... If you go and ride a TT next week at a stage race, are you in the same position or have you got two different positions in that on the uh, skis yeah i got two different two different bikes well two different bikes so uci position as far as difference goes um my triathlon bike i think is about two to three centimeters the seat is behind the bottom bracket i don't like going too far forward because the further forward you go you actually lose the ability to generate power it gets you over the front of the bike so it increases dynamics but it also puts you in front of the bottom bracket. So you're pushing a completely different way. And, and yeah, the ability to really accelerate, you lose that. So I've found a pretty happy medium that sort of halfway between those two. So I'm definitely more comfortable in the hips, but I can still sit back on it, you know, lean into it, so to speak, and give it some, give it some herbs. Um, but then at the front end, I've got quite long forearms. So on a normal UCI bike at 80 centimetres, it means it's, you know, my arms are generally dangling over the end or I've got to sort of really pull them back or have, you know, have the elbow pads sort of halfway up my forearm. Whereas on the triathlon bike, we're obviously able to move, have the elbow pads in a nice spot under the elbows. And, um, and then, you know, they're about two or three centimeters longer so that I can comfortably fit my hands, you know, just at the end of the skis. So yeah, it's not a massive difference. And, um, but yeah, it's certainly, certainly a, a bit of a difference. Although your your finger your you've got fingers crossed that they go back to the the fifties and sixties when they used to have a hundred mile TTs, yeah, so you'd oh, be that, bread and butter for you. You'd be in that, your element. <laughs> that would that would change things considerably, especially a team time trial because I just love to stick it to my teammates. You know, in the last sort of twenty thirty k when they start to get tired. Yeah, but speaking of teammates, that is another difference that I came across recently between um, uh, triathlon and cycling and it's something we hear quite a lot i mean road cycling that is there's something we hear quite a lot about is the kind of unification of riders and giving riders kind of like one voice in the way that like golf has 
the PGA and tennis has the uh, ATP. And there's the um, Professional Triathletes Organization in triathlon, um, which you have sort of voiced some views on. And how do you how do you sort of see that type of model where you've got a non-profit organization representing riders potentially working in cycling? Should it, is it something that we need? It, yeah, well, I guess you know one of the biggest things I've seen since the the PTO and the Professional Triathletes Union was formed is, firstly, I communicate a lot with my fellow you know peers I, I never really had much to do with them away from a race and now you know there's different issues you know we've been talking about draft rules for example recently um you know kona with regard to them bringing up you know the putting in an extra world championship which you know made it sort of logistically i, I personally won't even be able to be there because it's you know in may and middle of the cycling season but um, it, it, I said to Andrew Messick, the CEO, I said, listen, Andrew, this is difficult for the athletes that they need to qualify now for Kona because they need to come to America, especially the Europeans or Australians, and then they need to go home. And then they've got to try and find a race to qualify as well um, and then go all the way to Hawaii again. You know, it's logistics, a lot of money. Um, it's a lot of travel, a lot of jet lag, and, and also uh, two races where they have to try and be at a very, very high level, and, and that's you know, hard or three to qualify when you add in a qualifying race. So Andrew listened and he said, okay, we'll, we'll make a, a large number of spots. I think I've added around 10, eight or 10 slots, you know, for, for qualifying for Kona. And that's, you know, disregarding the ones that have already qualified, like the Fredinos and Blumenfeld's, the ones that have already got automatic qualification, past winners, et cetera. So it could go down to almost the top 20, you know, that, you know, you could qualify. So that's now a great incentive for all the athletes to go to St. George and try and get a good result and potentially qualify for Kona. And then they've got time to reset and, and focus on that. And, and that's a conversation I would have never had with Andrew and felt confident to stand up for my peers and say, you know, yeah, how can we, can we work around it? You know, you, I understand the global pandemic has forced you to put this extra race on, but you know, how can we you know come to an agreement here to make it equally good for the athletes? So, from from unionising and, and becoming all part of a, you know under one roof and and having trying to have one voice so to speak I guess in some parts that one voice has been me um, <laughs> it's been it's been great and and well received also by my peers so um, cycling I think definitely needs that obviously needs that the sad thing is with cycling we've been talking about the same thing for now 15 20 years and i'm part of the riders union the new you know the group that we're trying to get off the ground and i'm, I'm the representative from our team on that as well and yeah i mean it's 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 tough you know because you're just fighting against something that's basically well it's always been like this and it's like well that's true and that's you can continue to say that it'll always be like that but you know golf and tennis and baseball and nfl and all these other organizations said the same thing and they unionized and, and the sports, you know, changed for the better, you know, particularly for, yeah, well, for everyone at the end of the day, but obviously particularly the athletes um, and, and made a better, better sport, a better package, something better to present for everyone. So, um, you know, and we're seeing that in triathlon. We've seen the depth in triathlon increase significantly. You know, you had your Fredinos and these guys that were streets ahead and then a few more stragglers sort of, trying to challenge them like myself and then, you know, a bunch of other guys. Now you've got, you know, 20, 30 guys like me that believe we can challenge you. And, and that's, that's the depth, you know, and, and you see the same in golf, you see the same in tennis, you know, you never really know. I mean, you, you go and watch a tennis match now and you think, wow, Nadal might get beaten today. He often doesn't, but he might get beaten or Djokovic or, 
you know, or Federer. Whereas, you know, in, in triathlon, you know, you, you, you'd sort of just had dominant people for so long and now you, you're getting these surprise winners and a lot of guys up there. And, and I guess in cycling, you know, they've, they've certainly seen that depth come about naturally anyway with the emergence of the young guys. Um, so I don't think, you know, they need unionizing for that from that perspective, but that's been definitely a benefit in the, in the, in the, in the PTO, just better quality of racing. And, and there's certainly the, the potential for that in cycling too. Who do you think for, with the world tour hat on who, who is like that kind of, um, you know, once upon a time in the eighties, it was Hino, latterly, it was maybe someone like, uh, Cancellara, that patron, uh, of the, Oh, could it be you? Are you about to step into that sort of that sort of role in the pro peloton? Uh, well, I don't I don't know if my peers respect me enough, but I've certainly quietly, you know, tried to. It's one of those things you can't really force on people to join. You know, we had a lot of people join it in the the riders' union, um, but as far as then getting people to be active and engaged in it. You know, there's opposition now because, you know, of the existing body, which is very closely tied to the UCI. And so I went away, particularly this off-season, I really studied the uh, the Players Association, the NFL, NBA, and um, and obviously Major League Baseball, where they're, they're actually currently going through a lockout. You know, I mean, they're having a big, big battle with the owners um, over, you know, player player salaries and distribution of TV rights, et cetera, which is all stuff that we're, you know, trying to talk about this background. Um, and and then actually creating triathlon because it's actually non-existent, so we're actually just trying to create it in the first place. But the the big the big thing I found the commonality of why these things work is they are independent of the governing body. You know that the reason they're having this lockout is because the players' association doesn't agree with the major league baseball. You know, and at the moment in cycling, that'll never happen because the CPA, the, the you know the, the token sort of uh, riders federation to represent the riders is 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 governed by the UCI. You know whether they like it or not. You know the the, the money that goes through the CPA gets distributed to federations, and the bigger federations get more money, and they're the ones that vote for the UCI president. And it's you know there's just no there's no incentive for the CPA to create any trouble with the UCI. Not that we're trying to create trouble. We're just trying to, you know, create potentially a better sport, you know, a better package so that races and the UCI and owners can go and sell it to the networks and it's even more valuable. You know, I mean, if you thought about the riders having buy-in in the rights for a race, say the Tour de France, and you, the riders were prepared, okay, you know, Disney come and they say, right, we want to see your power, we want to see your heart rate, we want to have access to team cars, blah, blah, blah. And we're going to give every team $10 million to do that. That is a very different proposition to we want this information for to make better TV viewing, you know, and that's it. But if all of a sudden there's an incentive for the teams and the riders to create a better package, I guarantee we would be fully on board. Not only would the organizers make more money, the teams might be able to become more self-sufficient. You know, the riders could obviously do even better, which I don't think is a problem. And the viewers are going to get a better package. You know, they're going to get a better thing to watch on TV. And and that's what you get with the NFL. You know, you get the players mic'd up, you get the coaches mic'd up, you get interviews now at half time. Do you think the coach wants to stop as he's walking to the dressing room to say, especially in the playoffs, you know, they're down like by 10 points. He just wants to get in there and feel it. But they're getting, those, those players are getting paid and coaches and teams are getting paid more money for every extra game they make in the playoffs. You know, as a part, as, 
to, to put on a great show. And if you follow the NFL, this, uh, you know, this, the playoffs series was just freaking incredible. And, you know, and, and, and the thing is, you know, we've got a simple example of rider agents. That's one sort of issue we've had, you know, trying to get rider agents to educate their athletes. And the rider agents, they're all, you know, they, they have to get a license from the UCI. Now, in NFL and, and all these other American sports, the license comes from the Players Association. It's a set of rules to say, this is how we want to be represented. This is how we want you to look up, you know, represent us. And not the UCI sort of governing how those talks would go. Um, you know, and, and, and then obviously these agents are at mercy to the UCI to sort of not do the wrong thing, which is in some ways good. But is it potentially holding back how well they could represent us as individual as athletes, independently of of the governing body? So, you know, it was very fascinating for me to really dive in and actually take a really good look at the way these other sports have done it, um, even financial, you know, um, you know, retirement and things like that. You know, those those type of things have to be approved by the players' association because it's their money at the end of the day, and if people want to manage the players money they have to pay a fee to the players association the players association you know is quite wealthy you know um has has quite a lot of money coming through it so i think we could definitely do it differently every other professional professional sport well the big ones you know and i see us as a big one you know you look at how popular cycling is you know how many tv channels on it's on you know how much it stops stops countries and nations when the big races are on I feel that we're there and, uh, and I feel that we could, uh, could potentially do it even better. And, you know, and obviously triathlon is um, on a very small scale of trying to do it. And I think that's really great. And, um, you know, hopefully maybe it'll take triathlon really nailing it. Maybe it'll take triathlon potentially getting a big TV deal and, and showing that <laughs> with something that's potentially not even anywhere near as interesting to watch. Um, you know, cycling could uh, could do even do even better. Because I'm a, I'm a big rugby union fan, and in the UK they're going through the exact same thing. That they've come out of the pandemic, and financially, a lot of the teams are shot. A lot of the players have found themselves out of contract, and they're talking. They're having a lot of these conversations that you're talking about about how to modernise the sport, make it more like NFL, make it more sort of profitable and more commercially viable. And a big issue with rugby, especially in the UK, is what they say that the sort of men in blazers in their lovely salmon trousers and their blazers who are in their 60s and don't want to change things because they like how things were run in the 70s and 80s. Is that a similar problem in pro cycling that you've got a lot of people that just liked how things were run when he know was racing and uh, don't want it to modernise and change for the, for a new audience? Yeah, I mean, it's it's just always worked, hasn't it? You know, and, and you see at the moment particularly a lot of people that have been around for a long time and then, you know, you get cyclists that have come out of that generation that are now, you know, moved into those roles. And I, and I don't have anything against any of those people, nothing, because they don't know anything else. You know, they might have raced under those conditions. They might have worked under, you know, other other big owners or, or managers or, you know, people running the races you know, and, and work their way through to the top top position. Um, and they, 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 that's, that's how they learn. That's what they know. Um, but, um, yeah, I think it, the, 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 the thing is the sport has just got a huge amount more attention, of course, through, you know, lockdown and COVID was, was even another big boost for that. And, um, you know, you never, ever hear that, oh, the Dallas Cowboys might fold next year. I mean, it's just never going to happen. You know, I mean, 
and and obviously that's a lot of you know TV revenue, which is, is something that keeps. I mean, they've got stadiums, and I understand they say, oh well, we don't have stadiums, we can't sell tickets and whatever. No, you don't. You got TV, and that's the thing. My dad, you know, people live in Australia. They've got no other way to watch the Tour de France unless they get on a plane than to watch TV. You have a captive audience. Like they say, we can't like ca- capture everyone and put them all in a state. Yeah, no, you can't. But if they want to watch it, they've got to sit down in front of that TV and watch it. So, you know, I think that is such a powerful tool that, um, you know, it's like you hear the organisers, oh, well, we, you know, we're not sharing TV rights. You know, the teams are just complaining or the athletes are just complaining or blah, 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 they just want some money. It's like, well, no, that's not the case at all. What we want is a better sport, is a better package, which will mean more money for everyone, more money for you. Yes, the teams and the riders, you know, particularly the teams could become self-sustainable and, and make a great business model to have, you know, a, a, a very profitable profitable organisation. And, um, and the, and the organisers that own the races are going to be better off for it as well. So... You know, if, if you've always done what you're, I mean, it's a silly thing to say, but you always do what you've always done. You'll always get what you've always got. And uh, we've seen every other sport change and evolve and be better for it. And there's no reason why cycling couldn't do the same. And it's exciting to see a small sport like triathlon, you know, trying to trying to do the same thing. Yeah. I mean, the TV rights thing is, you know, that's a, that's a really, you know, that over here, that completely revolutionized football was like the mass injection of Sky Money and the creation of the Premier League it just like changed. You know, you had players that played an entire career and ended up being painter decorators at the end of it because they didn't have, you know, barely a kind of pot to win sort of thing. And now multi-millionaires. But there is that huge captive audience. And I think the ASO does reckon that bar the World Cup, the Tour de France is the most watched sporting event on an annual basis. Um, and it does seem such a spectacle and it seems there's so many things that could be measured and shown but I, you know heart rate power uh team radio as you say all those things that you see in formula one but i just wonder that's my fan perspective i'd like to see that but what's the appetite for sharing that data within the professional peloton except you know if we separate it from the money where money does talk mm. yeah yeah i mean i guess you know on the face of it you'd say no, but then again, you look at Strava and you see athletes and everyone very happy to put all their data. I mean, you can extrapolate quite a bit from that. Um, you know, I mean, Pogacar pretty much puts every ride on there. I mean, you can copy what he does if you want. It doesn't mean that you can, uh, you know, do, do the same what's. And then, <laughs> and then even you can't quantify the race craft. You can't quantify this. Um, and, and you know, also it could create some interest. I don't know, you could you could have basically play calls you know you, you say to do one thing but you're actually going to do something else and no one knows what's going on i mean it could be incredibly fat you know add a bit of the nfl the way they their quarterbacks they're calling the play you've got no idea what's about to happen i mean there's no there's nothing wrong with doing that either so um yeah i mean i think if as i said it's the way it's presented if if you just come to us and say hey listen we want to show all your data we want to show all this well, of course you're going to go oh uh, well, no, that's mine. But if you come to us and say, listen, we're going to give the team $10 million for sharing all this data because we're going to create this incredible package that, you know, the, I mean, I'm just throwing numbers out here, but the ASO is going to, you know, make 100, you know, there's going to be 100 million in, in TV rights that's distributed between the teams to do it. Then, which I honestly don't see as being out of the realm of possibility when you hear about the, you know, the, the value of NFL broadcasting rights or some of these other broadcasting rights. Um, 
then obviously there's going to be a discussion and there'll be an element of the team potentially saying to the writers, this is what's happening. And, you know, and it being part of your contract and we, we agree on all that and all the writers, you know, the writers, when you do a contract, you work with the agents, okay, that's, you know, all part of it. And maybe some athletes are compensated greater for that, you know, in their, in their writer contracts or, or whatever. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't see it, you know, on the face of it, yeah, saying now, okay, go and give it all up, yeah, no way. But as I said, come from a different angle. And um, and I don't see why there'd be any issue with sharing it because in reality, a lot of people share everything anyway. And um, before we go, I've, I've realised we've taken an hour of your time, Cam, and you, as we already know, are an incredibly busy man. So you've probably got four different sports to train for before going to bed. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, you know, like all the sports is like you know chasing your kid around, trying to get his pajamas on, and, uh, trying to trying to control your your then... massive um, your massive cross dog, Olive. Uh, Olive, yeah, 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 exactly. Well, she had, she had, she had training this morning, and uh, she's got swimming tomorrow morning. So I've got to get a towel ready, and <laughs> do all those things. So yeah, if I if I put a million dollars on the line, um, and you had to win a race, what would you choose? Would you choose rowing, swimming, cycling, or running? I'd choose Kona. <laughs> <laughs> Are you are you slightly uh, look at you? Are you secretly looking for a sport that uh, a triathlon that also includes rowing as well? The funny thing about rowing is they so for the LA Olympics. And I'll leave it leave it with this. The LA Olympics, they uh, they talked about it for Paris, and I was quite excited. But then they they changed to LA with the pandemic and not making changes to the program. But they're replacing the event I did with ocean rowing, coastal rowing. And it's, and it's incidentally called old man's rowing. You know, it's like seen as the old man's sport. They row out in the ocean and, you know, bounce about. And it's, a, it's more of an endurance race. It's a four to six K race. So it's like around 30 minutes and you, you know, you have to turn boys and it can be really rough and tidal, et cetera. So, yeah. So I guess um, if I think about rowing, I'm actually excited to see what that looks like and, and the potential of seeing if I can push this old rickety frame of mine through to LA and see if I could, uh, find my way back to the back to the games and, and back into rowing so um, wow yeah that'd be a lovely that'd be a great circle it really would the circle there. yeah, yeah. It, obviously it'd be the dream i mean i guess i've i've sort of done the hard part already i, I came back to cycling and yeah wow not only did i come back to cycling i came back with this team i mean it, I, I mean i pinch myself honestly every day I, I can't believe the position i'm in and i certainly don't sit there and dwell on it i just keep have to look forward because if i take a moment to contemplate you know how fortunate i am and the situation i am in you know find myself around me you know i just found buddy magnus sheffield's you know he stayed at house as i said he, he's washing down the laundry just like far out you know do that for it but you know and, and you know you're talking about you know one of those one of the exciting things in the sport at the moment you know you're sort of right in the middle of it and um and then yeah so why not you know i would have never thought i'd come back to cycling let alone this team so why not dream about going back to rowing? There we go, James. Uh, Camworth, um, I don't know whether to feel incredibly inspired or wholly inadequate <laughs> at how much I've underperformed and underwhelmed for my 27 years. They say, you know, they say never meet your heroes and it's not because they'll disappoint you. It's because they'll show you why they're heroes and <laughs> and you're you're not because... That's I don't know where you, where do you find the time to do that? I didn't we didn't even get on. I was going to ask him what happened to his Wall Street career because it sounds like <laughs> in the midst of that is like is Gordon Gecko simultaneously doing Iron Man's and which is really annoying 
franchise, by the way, Iron Man. Thanks for that, because it's, the plural is Iron Man's. Just sounds horrible. It's not Iron Men. Anyway, that's an aside. He did a whole Wall Street career, a bit like Simon Gerrans, actually. He now yeah. works for Goldman Sachs, so it's obviously an Aussie thing to go into money. But then to come back out of that, do you know how much time it takes to train for three sports and have a job? It's so annoying that he's just, <laughs> honestly, um, I mean, it's not. He's incredibly impressive and he's incredibly inspiring. His outlook on how he approaches bike racing and Kona and he's clearly so infused by the young riders around him. He was talking about Mag- Magnus Sheffield there, who's 19-year-old American racing with Ethan Hayter, a 22-year-old uh, Brit. He's clearly got such a sort of verve, the Joie de vivre. verve for yeah. life. Joie de vivre. Thank you very much, um, James, for that. But, I mean, he probably just will... Like, he's the kind of guy that he'll be in his 60s and he'll still be competing and he'll still be going out every day on the bike or running because he just bloody loves it. Yeah, I def- I put money on with William Hill take bets on anything, don't they? That's always a thing. Is that a thing? Can you just bet on anything? Will they give you? If you go directly to, to 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 William, Mr. Hill, to William, to yeah. Mr. Hill, yeah, to Billy, Billy Hill, mm. Billy Hilly. Um, yeah, I put money on uh, Camworth doing a kind some some hour record, some uh, age group hour record in his in the you know in his advancing years, probably taking the record for uh, the fastest man over an hour off Robert Marchand, uh, you know, at the age of 100. He'll probably live forever. Uh, I've seen a picture of him with his shirt off, and he is ripped as well. He doesn't really look like yeah. a cyclist. Yeah. And he is, but just like, I mean, it's not something that you can see because you're listening to this. You're yes, not this seeing is, this. This is an audio format. This is an audio <laughs> format. That's an audio format. But he had the biggest grin the entire time. Yeah. Uh, you might have been able to hear a little bit of his grin. And I think I'd want him on my team. If I was Dave Brailsford, I'd meet him. I'd see him probably hanging out with the rest of my team. And I think that's exactly the sort of force I want there. Well, mate, absolute golden touch. He he sort of touched upon it there in the in the podcast. He trained with Chris Froome in 2017. Yes. Froome went and won, yep. tour, well, uh, then won the 2018 Giro. Meanwhile, 2018, early 2018, he's trained with Garrett Thomas. What does Garrett Thomas go and do? Win the, the Tour, tour de, France. de France. 2019, who's he training with? Theo Gagenhart. What does Theo Gagenhart do in 2020? Wins the Giro d'Italia. Moral of that story, if you want to win a Grand Tour, you need to have Camworth as your training partner. That is, I mean, you should write his bio for his website. <laughs> you go to coaching, the Camworth method, hang out with me, yeah. you'll win. I'll make it worth your while. And he's only 36, which is 38 old. now. No, he's 38 Oh, sorry, now. he's 36 when he came back into now. in 2020. He's 38 yeah. now. But, you know, that gives him another... <sighs> I don't know, let's say five years, if you're looking at Jens Voigt, let's say... And Alejandro eight, Valverde. Exactly, yeah. eight years if you're Chris Horner, um, 12 years if you're uh, David Rebel. I can never say He's only name. just hitting his, like, he's only just hitting his stride in terms of endurance yeah. sport. Like, if you look at ultra runners, you look at, like, ultra, ultra sort of distance endurance athletes they hit their stride mid to late 30s early 40s yeah a lot of them you know which you turn up at your local half marathon it's them blokes in their 40s in their fly zoom nike shoes who are absolutely walking the floor with a load of lads in their 20s there you go i mean that's a i've heard you mention the uh your nike vaporfly shoes before you're not a fan are you i'm not no mainly because uh 
the podcast would have probably already gone out, but I'm doing a half marathon soon with a really close friend of mine and we're both very evenly matched in terms of our performance. Our splits are very similar, but he has a pair of 200-pound Nike shoes that are giving him, you know, he's he's basically got, it's like he's got a motor in his bike. It's like he's riding a motorized bike and I'm on a rickety old steel frame in my 80-pound Adidas running shoes. And... um I'm convinced that that if I do lose to him will be the reason. Well, I won't lose to him. I think when's it? When's your uh, when's your half? Uh, it's the thirteenth of March. Thirteenth of March. Okay, I think there's just about enough time for me to send you Born to Run, which is the book about the um, Tarumara Indian uh, Native Americans and how good they are at running and how they issue shoes pretty much all together they make some shoes out of old See, tires that would, that would get really in his head if i turned up on the day yeah shoeless also tell him like, this. Z- like uh, zola bud yeah yeah exactly <laughs> and tell him this in 1972 nike released nike pegasus trainer and the next year there were more injuries at the boston marathon than ever before and in subsequent years that injury curve just went up and people do say this is in born to run so it is just one person's conjecture really that the running shoe the modern sneaker gave us leg injuries from running people didn't used to really get so many injuries when they were running and just little old plimsolls so there's every chance that nike's doing it all over again (laughs) big nike big running big running isn't it it's big running yeah exactly big running but um i mean they're never going to sponsor us now so sorry nike but uh they probably weren't really no. running to do they anyway. burnt their bridges but of cycling we should in probably and i five didn't they <laughs> well, i mean yeah although don't remember when cav used to have nikes but they weren't nikes they were dmts that he literally had painted with a nike yeah, and then sort of like a sock and nike sock to go with it oh no that no. he did have a pair of the the um the Ronaldo 1998 World Cup final boots remade into a set of cycling cool. shoes was unbelievable. I'd have paid serious money for a set of those. And I showed you this today, didn't I? That's not you showed me these before, but there's a new version. The Velo Sambas, yeah. Added a Sambas, but with SPD um, cleat hot. Like they, and they're vegan apparently. So um, that means everyone, oh, everyone can eat them. <laughs> But we should probably go, but I'm going to leave you on this little factoid that um, cropped up when I was looking at just how old people can be to do stuff. Right. So the oldest Tour de France participant, do you know who that was? Cast your mind back 120, 118 years and you might be in with a shout. Yes. Yes, I do. Yes, he does. And I'll just share that information with you because Joe does like to hide his information under his bushel. Mm. Uh, it was... Omri Paré, Frenchman, obviously, with a name like that. He was 50 wow. when he rode okay. the 1904 Tour de France. The notoriously tough tour. Notoriously tough tour. Notoriously cheaty tour. Ooh. So you had 12 riders in total, only 15 officially finished. 12 riders having been disqualified for doing things like taking trains <laughs> and getting picked up in the middle of the night by their mates and driven in a car. <laughs> it was like, and it was such a bad tour that they um, they postponed the 1905 tour and they only did it again when they changed the rules. So they were actually going to miss us. They were so disgusted at the riders' yeah. behaviour that um, de Grange was going to postpone the subsequent year's tour. But weirdly, in that same race, the youngest ever Tour de France rider, or Tour de France winner, do you know who that was? Uh, Henry Cornet. Yes, exactly. Inventor of the waffle cone. And also... <laughs> Henry Horn, if you translate it into English. 
<laughs> and he was nine. He was nineteen. He was just shy of his twentieth birthday. And he only won. Mm. He was. He finished fifth. The only one. He got given it four months later after they finally worked out who was cheating. <laughs> anyway, there's a little pointless factoid for you. Thank you very much for that, James. Uh, on that note. Thank you very much to Lindsay, our producer, putting this Thank episode you, together. Um, if you enjoyed this episode, which I sure did and James did as well, make sure you leave it a review on Spotify, on Apple, wherever you get your podcasts. Um, share it with your mates as well. That'd be lovely, wouldn't it? Um, and your parents. Um, and, and your mates' parents. And your mates' parents. And your mates' parents' cat. But yeah. until next time, James, it's been a pleasure. It has. Speak to you again soon. Au revoir. This episode of the Cyclist Magazine podcast is brought to you by Hammerhead. The Hammerhead Crew 2 is a GPS cycling computer that can take your ride to the next level. Joe, what Crew 2 features do you like the sound of? For me, James, it's the Crew 2's climber feature. Climber's predictive path technology automatically detects climbs on my route, relaying vital information such as distance and elevation left to the top of the climb, colour-coded average gradients every 100 metres, and my current location on the climb, allowing me to judge my efforts to perfection whether I preload a route or not. For a limited time, our listeners can get a free custom colour kit and an exclusive premium water bottle with the purchase of a Hammerhead Karoo 2. All you have to do is visit hammerhead.io right now, add all three items to your cart and use promo code CYCLISTPOD at the checkout to get yours today. This is an exclusive limited time offer only for our podcast listeners. So don't forget to use our special promo code. That's hemahead.io promo code cyclistpod and get your Karoo 2 and free custom colour kit and premium water bottle today.